This is The Guardian. Today, the man who was jailed for life for stealing $14. For anyone coming out of prison, getting back into civilian life can be overwhelming. After years inside, so many things outside, your relationships, the social circles you moved in, even the food at the corner store might have changed. So I first met Dawood Colson, who's 55 years old, just five days after he had been released from prison. It was very overwhelming for him to come out of prison, but he was excited to see his family. He was excited to meet people who he had been talking to in prison but never met in person. Um, and he was excited to just, you know, eat non-prison food. You know, my wife introduced me to calamari last night. Oh, nice. You know, I've never had that. You wow. know what I mean? And her and my daughter are, are setting me up for sushi right okay, now. Okay, good. <laughs> You know, he was just excited to be outside of the walls of prison. It's the buzz out here. It's like everybody's moving and it's like everybody's oblivious to everybody. And it's like, you know, it's like we're out here. And it, it, it's going to take some getting used to. It's not going to happen overnight. Dawood has been talking to Sam Levin, who's a reporter for Guardian US. Sam often writes about crime and justice. And in particular, the racial disparities that are built into the U.S. legal system. In California, where Sam lives, there's a law called Three Strikes. This is how it has worked. If a person committed two felonies that were classed as serious or violent, and then they went on to commit any other felony crime, no matter how small, they were given a life sentence. The law came into force in the mid-90s, when there was a wave of violent crime in the state. In theory, it would keep the most dangerous offenders away from society. But in practice, it's merely served to swell California's prison population, with tens of thousands of people locked up for life for committing petty crimes, like Dawood. So the person I was meeting was coming out of prison after 20 years behind bars for stealing $14. He hadn't seen his family in person during that time and he was reuniting with them after such a long period and they really welcomed him with open arms. His two kids and many of his grandkids who he had never met surprised him with a reunion at his grandson's football game and they were all there, you know, just to give him a hug and to, to be there. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the devastating impact of California's three strikes law. Sam, we wanted to speak to you because you recently wrote up this very moving interview with Dawood Colson, a man who ended up being given a life sentence for stealing $14. Tell me about what happened on that day when he got caught. On the day that Dawood Colson got caught, he was living in an encampment near a freeway in Long Beach, California, and he was really struggling with drug addiction at the time and just extreme poverty. And so he ended up walking into an unlocked garage. And I was in my drug-induced, you know, whatever the case may be, and I needed some drugs. I came across his house, 
So I go into the garage area, the door is open, and I see another door. I'm like, what garages have a door inside of a door? So I open this door, I'm like, oh, this is a room. So I walk into the room, and it's like somebody actually lives there, you know what I mean? And, and it's a gang of jewelry on the counter, and money on the counter, and I gather up all this stuff in a bag. And the dude who lives in there, he opens the door, he comes in. So he wasn't going to let me leave with that stuff, you know, so we get to tussling, and he called for his brother-in-law. So his brother-in-law comes out there, and he helps them, and eventually they get the bag from me, you know. So um, finally, I'm able to get away from him, I'm able to break away from him. When police found him shortly after, in his pockets was change that he had grabbed from the house, $14.08. That was considered both a robbery and a burglary. And Sam, it's worth adding, isn't it, that he didn't have a weapon on him. But how was it that he'd got to that point of just total desperation? Dawood had a really difficult upbringing. His mother was 16 years old when she had him and she gave him up for adoption at age four. And for Dawood, you know, that was really painful as a young kid. You know, he talked to me about feeling like a piece of trash thrown away. Me being adopted, I don't want you, you're a piece of trash. That might not have been her mindset, but that's the way it was received, you know what I mean? It's the coldest thing when your parents give you up. And so he was adopted by a park's groundskeeper and his wife in Long Beach, and he was victimized throughout his childhood. Um, sexually abused, physically abused, you know, beat with bats and hit by cars, and, you know, I survived a lot. And so he had significant mental health challenges as a young kid. He was struggling with hallucinations and self-harm. And through that, how did he cope with it? What was he doing with his life? He was very addicted to drugs and struggling with the disease of addiction. He got involved in gangs in and out of prison for very small offenses. He said that he had been shot twice as a young person, you know, was living on the streets. He had two kids, but he was also in and out of their lives. Just this really difficult childhood gave way to a really difficult early 20s for him. And of course, stealing $14, that wasn't his first offence. So what other crimes had he been convicted of before this one that landed him with a life sentence? One was giving a false name to a police officer at one time. And then there were two pretty similar incidents in his 20s in which he basically removed part of a window screen from a home for a possible break-in but never entered the homes and never took anything. Those were considered non-violent, serious felonies. And so in both cases, he was sent to prison, he got out and was still in the exact same position of poverty, addiction that he had been. Right, so then we come up to his third offence when he was 35, the break into the garage. Why did that land him with a life sentence. This was considered a violent burglary because he himself had been attacked by the person who lived there. Because of the law at the time called three strikes and you're out, he got a life sentence, meaning that he would be eligible for parole after 35 years. The judge also gave him a $10,000 and $20 fine for the crime of stealing $14.08. 
which is money he definitely wouldn't have had access to. So how did Dawood feel about that sentencing? To him, a life sentence was a death sentence. Life in prison meant he was never coming home. And I think he felt like he had just been crying out for help his whole life, you know, and that everything that he did was a cry for help. I was hoping and praying that somebody would come to me, you know, and be like, look, man, what's going on with you? You know what I mean? Let, let's sit down and talk. You know, let's go let's go have a cup of coffee. You know, what's, what's making you tick? What's making you act this way? But that didn't pan out, so. So, Sam, this happened in 2006, and it happened because of a law that was passed in California 12 years earlier, the Three Strikes Law. After that was passed, in the next few years, throughout the 90s, many more states across the US enacted similar laws. What was the political context at that time with regards to crime? Why was this seen as something that needed to happen? The three strikes law passed at a time when there was extreme panic and fear in the country around crime. And one incident that really was the catalyst for three strikes was the kidnapping and killing of a 12-year-old girl named Polly Class in 1993, a year before the law passed. Tell me more about her case. What happened? So on October 1st of 1993, Polly was having a sleepover with two friends and the three of them were playing a board game and essentially a man broke into the house and took her. After 64 days of searching, they found the person who had killed her who led the authorities to Polly's body. Wow, okay. So there was a lot of media attention around Polly Class's killing. And that kind of motivated this outcry for the law to change, to more rigorously punish people who had committed crimes before and then went on to commit very serious violent crimes. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I can't overstate just how huge a national story this was. And when three strikes and you're out, the law was presented to voters. It was presented as a law that would lock up those dangerous, violent, irredeemable people to ensure that your loved ones will be safe. President Bill Clinton at the time was directly supporting this tough on crime crackdown. You know, this was a time when there was a surge in violence. And so around the same time that California passed Three Strikes and You're Out, Bill Clinton and the federal government, also with support from then Senator Joe Biden, who's now our president, passed a notorious 1994 crime bill, which was a bill that really ratcheted up punishment for people and paved the way for the sort of mass incarceration crisis we're in today. There must be no doubt about whose side we're on. People who commit crimes should be caught, convicted, and punished. This bill puts government on the side of those who abide by the law. The kidnapping of Polly Class was a national story, and for Clinton, it was something that he specifically cited in his efforts to expand harsher punishments. And he actually had one of Polly's sisters, Annie, who was six when she was kidnapped, come to the White House as part of this sort of TV program of kind of Bill Clinton talking to children. From ABC News. 
President Clinton answering children's questions, a 9X children's special. Now reporting from the White House, Peter Jennings. And so Annie, you came there and talked about the impact of her sister's kidnapping. I felt very bad when Polly was kidnapped. Once my cat died and I said when Polly was stolen, you can't get, you can get another cat, but you can't get another sister. I actually spoke with Annie and her sister Jess, who now run a podcast together called A New Legacy, where they interview community leaders and organizers who are working to undo the mass incarceration crisis in the U.S. I'm starting to get sort of scared because there's so many bad people out on the streets. So this was actually one of my most painful memories from that time, um, and it happened just months after Polly's body was found. I had just turned seven. They kind of played this pre-recorded footage in which Annie's giving a reporter kind of a tour of her home. These are my bells that goes on my door and... Showing how she had like booby-trapped her room with bells and ropes to stop intruders because that kind of made her feel better and she was scared that she herself would be kidnapped. And she has an opportunity at the White House to ask a question and she basically says, do you think I'm going to live to grow up? My sister Polly didn't live to grow up, so I didn't feel that safe. And my question is that I just don't feel very safe, and I want America to be safer for children. And you think the president could do something, don't you? I agree. I think I could. Um, the shame that I feel when I remember that moment is pretty devastating. Um, you know, I was this little girl whose whose sister had just been murdered months earlier, but I was kind of made into this mouthpiece for this tough on crime movement that has inflicted so much harm on so many communities. I know it's not my fault that three strikes was passed, but I think it speaks to the way politicians and legislators and law enforcement selectively use and exploit victims to promote their own agendas with little to no thought of what the future repercussions might be. So it's within this national context of a turn towards being tough on crime that the three strikes law was passed in California. How much public support did it have there? Three strikes was overwhelmingly popular in California. Should violent criminals ever be paroled? NBC's Jim Cummins looks at an idea with support at the grassroots and at the White House. Locking up repeat offenders for good. They call this one three strikes and you're out. Lawmakers first adopted it through legislation in the spring of 1994, right around the same time as Clinton had this meeting with Polly's sister. But by November, voters actually enshrined it and it spread to 23 other states. And it was also enshrined in federal law supported by Bill Clinton. But there must have been people who opposed it as well, right? What arguments did people make against it? California's law in particular inspired a lot of concern from civil rights groups and public defenders because in actuality what the law said was that any felony of any kind, any third felony, would give you an automatic life sentence in prison. So that could be like a shoplifting or just a, a minor thing. Within the first decade, you had thousands of people sentenced under the law. And about half of the people sentenced, I think it was like 3,500 people, 
were given life sentences for these offenses that were classified as quote-unquote nonviolence. In fact, California, after this law passed, ended up having a huge overcrowding catastrophe in its prisons. Something like one person in the prison was dying every week because they just weren't staffed to take care of that many people. And today, there are 33,000 people who are still in prison under three strikes laws. And that's nationwide? No, just in California. So in California alone, there are 33,000 people in prison right now serving sentences under the three strikes law. Wow. So as you said, the idea behind this law was that it was going to stop really serious violent offenders from ever coming out into society again. To what extent is that how the law has worked in practice? By design, this law targets crimes of poverty. They commit these crimes, they go to prison and then they get out and they commit similar crimes again because the prison system isn't helping them with their needs. And then they commit a third crime, it can be any kind of felony and they end up in prison. Research has repeatedly shown with this law that it didn't reduce crime, it didn't deter crime. That's just been demonstrated time and time again. And has this law then targeted any specific minority groups more than others? Absolutely. I mean, the racial disparities in the three strikes law are overwhelming. Something like 80% of people who have been affected by the law are people of color And I think 45% of people who are serving life sentences under the law are Black in California. And for context, Black residents make up only 6.5% of the broader population. Let's talk then about Dawood and his time inside prison. How did he reflect on that when you spoke to him? Dawood worked really hard to make the most of the time he had while he was in there, do what he could to survive. And he also participated in a lot of therapy groups that actually helped him kind of grapple with his childhood trauma for the first time in his life. Um, one of the groups that were really um, was really instrumental in me changing was um, Grip, Guiding Rage into Power. That group really helped me with my rage because it actually took me back to my initial trauma. And my initial trauma was when I was adopted. You know what I mean? So it made me look at that, you know what I mean? And it made me look at, you know, um, one of my major triggers, which was rejection. That kind of changed the course of how he thought of himself. And he talked to me about this sort of affirmations workshop he was in and that he ended up leading as a facilitator that really changed so much of his thinking. I would get him around in a circle and you know, I would tell them just yell out all the bad stuff that you've heard all your life. They started screaming out, you know, I hate you, and I hate that I had you, you know. I mean, you know, it's crazy some of the stuff you would hear. And it's like 60 and 70 of the toughest dudes, you know, they're yelling this stuff out. They've heard this all their life. So what I would do is right after I have them yell out all that poison, I'd give them all flashcards and have them write down three positive affirmations that they would like to hear. So, you know, I would break the groups up into ones and twos. 
then I'm going to have the tools go around the whole circle, you know, and whisper in the person's ear, you know, I love you. I'm glad you're here or, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? Just a positive affirmation. And it was one of the most powerful things that I've ever been involved in, you know, because like I say, the, the toughest dudes were like breaking down like double barrel shotguns. They were like, oh, man, And after it, you know, I give them time to process and they'd be like, look, man, I've never, ever, ever, ever experienced anything in my life like that. It sounds that Dawood, in that regard, has been really fortunate, you know, to have access to those therapy sessions because the prison system overall in California that you're describing is overpopulated and understaffed. And I can't imagine that in every prison they would have access to that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was in a prison that's not far from a major metro area. And so there are people who go to that prison to volunteer and help. But there are plenty of prisons in the state that are located like in the middle of nowhere, rural, remote places that just have such little programming. And I think, you know, he didn't need to be removed from his family and to be removed from society to get this kind of treatment. Coming up, if harsh laws like three strikes aren't working, what should replace them? Sam, it's clear then that this law hasn't worked in the way it was originally intended to. Have there been any efforts to amend or abolish it? Yeah, so there was a major reform that was passed by the voters in 2012, which essentially established that third strikes that were nonviolent and non-serious could no longer count as third strikes. And people who had been sentenced with that third strike for a quote-unquote, non-violent or non-serious offense would be able to come home. So that was really substantial. But at the same time, there are many, many crimes that are classified as serious or violent that are also minor, and those folks have been left behind by this reform. I wonder, for the victims of serious violent crimes and for their families, whether they would want a law like this to stay in place, though. You know, I mean... What have they got to say about it? Yeah, so this law was kind of born out of a very powerful victims' rights movement, but that's not actually what all survivors or victims want. And in fact, there are many, many survivors and victims who are invested in something different. Polly Class's sisters, Jess and Annie, who are adults now, they believe on a fundamental level that this law and this kind of punishment is wrong. You know, their tragedy gave way to this law and they see it as sort of their duty to speak out about it. They want to reclaim their sister's story to be one that is actually about preventing crime, one that's actually about positive societal development. And so that's, that's, that's their mission. What do they feel would be a good alternative then to three strikes laws? They've become really invested in seeing that our society support alternatives to just harsh punishment and do things that actually prevent crime. You know, the way to do that is not to lock up one person. It's to actually invest in the things that prevent crime in the first place. I think most victims would say, if you ask them what they want, they want to prevent harm like what they experience from happening to anyone else. And when we're talking about prevention, we have to look at strategies and tools that have been proven empirically to work. We have come to realize that three strikes 
has perpetuated a general paradigm in our justice system of punishment and revenge. We believe that it's much more effective to help people that are hurting and committing crimes, most of which are crimes of poverty or mental health or addiction. We're advocating for prevention, rehabilitation, and reentry services because it's just the smarter way to do it. So really, this represents something much bigger about attitudes towards incarceration in the US, right? This idea that prison is the best way to deal with crime. What they're saying is that that whole attitude needs to shift. It's not just about the three strikes law. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing Annie has said to me multiple times that really stuck with me is, you know, arguably the worst thing that could happen to any family happened to them, right? The worst imaginable thing. And in terms of healing, you know, they want survivors to have healing and to have that kind of support. And that doesn't come from having just these harsh punishments. You know, certainly that is what some people want, but that's also, in many cases, all that is offered to them, right? That's what the system says. We can lock this person away forever and and that's it. And, you know, from their perspective, it's what if survivors of crime, what if they got the actual care, support, financial support, all these things that people need to sort of heal and move past surviving something horrific. And how does what they're advocating for fit in with the political climate at the moment? We're at a time in which there are some familiar callbacks to the early 90s. There have been concerns about increasing violence and crime rates during the pandemic. And as a result, it's become, again, this like political hot button issue where in the midterm elections, which just happened in the U.S., candidates across the country were running on these tough-on-crime platforms, this kind of fear-mongering. It feels like the exact same tactic to try to exploit people's fear. And in a way, it's been sort of confusing for us because we're seeing all of these solutions and we're talking to all of these community leaders that are doing such amazing work with very little support. And there's so much that you can imagine about what a better future could look like. There are a lot of people who are trying really hard to change the system, but those people are up against the sort of media narrative, right-wing narrative, and some Democrats as well who push the sort of tough-on-crime messaging. In our current climate, and where Biden may be running again for a second term, you also have him really leaning into some of this tough-on-crime messaging and really leaning into ideas of expanding police powers. I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. Look, there's no greater responsibility for government than ensuring the safety of our people. The the budget that goes into our justice system and policing in this country is astronomical. And I believe that that needs to be drastically reallocated to create systems of care that are defined by the most harmed in the least helped communities. One of the other things that I'll just add to that is I think it takes awareness of the issues for policy and reallocation of funds to happen. Culture informs policy, right? And I think the people get to determine where we're going to go as a society. And I think we have more power than we think we do. Dawood was actually released this year. 
How did that come about? He did not get out because of these reforms that enabled people to get out for nonviolent offenses because his offense was classified as violent and serious. However, there is a system in place that allows the prison system itself to recommend resentencing for certain people inside who the prison recognizes, you know, have accomplished a lot and that they're continuing to remain behind bars is no longer in the interest of justice or safety. And his case landed before a judge named Judge Daniel Lowenthal, who spoke just really passionately about how unfair this was. You know, he said, your sentence is so disproportionate to the offense that it shocks the conscience and offends fundamental notions of human dignity. It exemplifies racial disparity in sentencing and undermines our system's commitment to equal justice. Your continued incarceration is no longer in the interest of justice. In fact, it's highly dubious that it ever was. He essentially said that if Dawood came before him today with those circumstances, he would sentence him to parole, meaning no prison time, and put him into a treatment program and get him the help that he needed and had been crying out for all along. But instead, decades later, here he is, um, finally getting his freedom. And you were you were only speaking to him five days after he'd come out of prison. So obviously that's very early for him to have any sort of concrete plans for what he's going to do with his life. But did he have any idea when you asked him about that? Yeah, I mean, he's obviously just sort of readjusting now. He has an amazing wife, Veronica, who's a childhood friend. This is us back in the day. That's her and that's me behind her. Oh my gosh. That's how far back we go. Is this like a school yearbook or something? No, this is, we were at, we were at the park. Yeah. Showing that crop top. Yeah, so that's her right and that there. Afro. And that's me right there. Oh, that's yeah. where my baby had hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they reconnected while he was incarcerated. And so right now he's just spending time with her and adjusting to being back outside. You know, um, this is something I've been waiting for for, for, for all my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> What's so funny, man? You know, you know what I'm finna pull up, huh? I do. You know I know. I'm, why are you getting emotional? Come here, babe. You got to share them you emotions. Know, you know you I got get. to share them emotions, lady. I get emotional because I'm excited. But I think he does want to be involved in advocacy in some way moving forward. I think that's partly why he was open to telling his story in, in the hopes that it could help someone else. And his hope or his dream is to go back to prison to talk to folks and, and help them. He's very, very aware of the fact that there are thousands and thousands like him who remain behind bars, some who have little or no hope of ever coming home. Why do they have little or no hope of ever coming home? I mean, what do you think the likelihood is of this law being amended or overturned? So there have been efforts to get this law repealed. There are people who are motivated to see it happen. It will be an uphill battle because the law was enshrined by California voters through a ballot measure. That means the only way to get rid of it is through another ballot measure. That being said, California voters have repeatedly approved major criminal justice reform efforts. California is considered one of the most progressive liberal states for policy. And so, you know, there are people across the country in harsher prison systems who were sentenced to life because of these types of laws who have really no hope of coming home. Sam, thank you very much for sharing this with us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Sam Levin. You can read his interview with Dawood Colson and with Annie and Jess Nickel at theguardian.com and I really recommend you do. 
Thank you to them for sharing their experiences with us. This episode was produced by Rose DeLarabiti and Ned Carter-Miles. Sound design was by Solomon King and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. <laughs>